Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today I'm very excited because something that doesn't get discussed enough in America, education, we've got Lori Batar, who's an educational consultant, was a teacher of the year, was nominated for Disney Awards in teaching, and she's the author of the book SOS, Save Our Students, and we need to look at our educational system. Lori, welcome. Thank you. How did you get into education? Well, all of our journeys take us in different paths. My mom was a teacher, and my grandma was a teacher, and I certainly swore to God that I was never going to be a teacher as I watched them struggle and go through trials and tribulations. But Where'd the, you grow up? I grew up in Illinois, a small town called Quincy, about an hour and a half north of St. Louis. So I had the Midwest and the farming and the community, and my first chapter really goes into to what my journey looked like. And I tried psychology, and I tried addiction specialist, and I tried a lot of different career hats on, and none of them really fit. Well, why you wanted to help people? Was that why you were trying all those different things? Of course. So you knew you had to help people. You just didn't have the vehicle. So you tried all these different things. How'd you get into teaching? At the time, in the uh, career path, it made sense for me to pick up teaching as a way to use the tools I had learned in psychology and in the treatment centers where I'd done internships to put things together to really help kids in a different way. So my whole model of teaching came out of therapeutic background. It came out of wraparound services. It came out of that model. And then the academic piece. I spent that extra year um, getting those pieces in check, and I came straight to Miami and started my career. How, what was your first teaching position? My first real teaching position was at North County Elementary in a third grade classroom and I highlight several of the stories of that first baptism by fire teaching experience. Um, the kids really had a lot of needs. There were more problems than I could have ever comprehended and I just taught hard and fast and did everything I could to try to make an impact. What do you feel is the greatest challenge facing our educational system today? I would have to say the ability to meet the kids where they are is probably the biggest challenge that everybody faces. And there are so many components to that, whether they're financial constraints, whether they're emotional constraints, uh, just facility constraints. But being able to meet kids right where they are and provide them the support they need is probably one of the biggest challenges. Now, when you say right where they are, you're talking about how their brain works? What are you talking about? I'm talking about everything that makes that child who they are. Their environment, their heredity, their brain, their learning style, um, their energy, their emotions, and everything that comes together that way. So you're basically saying what we say here at differentbrains.com, that one size does not fit all. Now, in your suggestions for teaching, what are the logistics of that for teachers? What are the logistics of meeting the student where they are? And you know, how do, you, how do they do it? What would you like to see change? I just remember once I was principal for a day down in Hollywood, Florida. Went to a middle school. And I love asking teachers, I love asking anyone in a different walk of life, say, 
what's the single thing about your job that a guy like me would have no idea? And they told me, three different teachers, that it was, I'm not just a teacher. I have to be the social worker. I have to be a parent. I have to be everything to these kids because they, many of them don't have any support. What's been your experience that way? Well, I would have to concur, but I would change the language just a little bit. Um, over the years, it was challenging. It was difficult um, to meet kids right where they were. But I didn't have to be the parent. The way I'd like to see that change is I get to be their parent. I get to be their social worker. And I get an opportunity to suit up and show up for that kid every single day because nobody else can. And so I think it's an honor. I think it's a privilege. And it's a real hard shift for a lot of folks. But that's part of what my book is all about, is that you have more power. You are a superhero. And it only takes five minutes of your life to change the entire trajectory of a, of a child's life. may not happen right away, but every single day that you meet them where they are and you meet them at the door and you make a joke and you hug them and you love them and you give them that good start, you have the opportunity to change their entire trajectory. And it does matter. Very well said. You know, and I, I've had the opportunity to meet people like leaders like Temple Grandin, um, who says that her whole trajectory was changed by her science teacher, were it not for that one teacher. And certainly we see over at the Boys and Girls Club of Broward County, where we serve 13,000 great kids, uh, many of them don't have support at home and don't have parents. And uh, we're very proud we have a high school graduation rate of about 90%, whereas for the similar demographic in the county, it's... In 36% in some areas. And um, what we have to do is figure out how do we make the Lori Batar method the prevalent method? How do we go about it? What steps do we take as a society to do that? Well, I've given that a lot of thought, and it's really hard to articulate that in a few words. But the one thing I know very clearly with the new laws that have passed, they, uh, the powers that be have started to understand that social-emotional learning is pretty powerful stuff and pretty important stuff, and they want to use it as a measure to school grades and school success moving forward. They're not really sure how yet, but the one thing I know about standing in that classroom and in the tyranny of the moment every single day and running my charter school with all of the kids and all of their pieces, I think the most important thing I can do and that I want to do is train teachers in how to care for themselves because when they are learning to use the social-emotional skills that they may have not developed, then they can teach it. But you can't give away something you don't have. And if you learn to care for yourself and you learn the social-emotional skills that you need, self-management, self-regulation, responsible decision-making, and as an adult, you can then articulate that and not make all the mistakes that I made along the way think that that whole philosophy and that opportunity makes that shift from I have to be a parent to I get to be their parent. The glass is half full. It is. Um, what can you tell our differentbrains.com audience in your educational consulting and teaching and running a charter school and all of your experience? 
the difference between your male students and your female students, if any? That's a great question, and I probably could not have answered it had I not been a parent of a son. Uh, My 19-year-old son taught me a lot about things I could have never learned any other way. When I went into the classroom with male and female students, I really tried to take off whatever glasses I had and see them for whoever they were, wherever they were, and meet their needs. But my son taught me definitively, at least in his case, that, that heredity in a male causes them to run like a motor. My son ran, and when I had my tutoring company, he was just constantly, I'm running, I'm running, I'm going, I'm going. And they were very active and very kinesthetic. And I would watch as we went to events and watch little girls sitting and coloring, and I would just think, wow, my son could or would never do that. But they still got to the same place. They just do it in a different way, like your, like your viewers already know and they already understand. What role does neurodiversity play in your world? What role does different brains in these various students play in your prism that you look through? Well, I always joke that probably for the first 10 years of my career, I was a great motivator. In the 90s, we didn't have data, we didn't have measurements, we just taught hard and fast. We called it spray and pray and hope they get it because we really just didn't know what they needed. And so we used what we liked as teachers. We decided we were going to do units on things like that. But as we've evolved and as we've grown, both in science and education, we found that being able to measure some of their learning style, being able to diagnose and see what are their strengths and weaknesses, gives us a better shot to be able to provide the services and the, and the specific gaps that they may need filled. And so as I read your book, Asper Tools, and I watched how you put those things together with your daughter, I could see very clearly that being able to, to observe and collect data, whether it's anecdotal or whether it's formative or summative, helps us really frame and support those students, whatever they have to offer. Um, in my book, I'm the superhero, my students are the sidekicks, and we fight the arch enemies of education, poverty, gang, special ed services, attention deficit disorder. Each of those students, I tell their story and the, and the life they were living, much like your daughter was able to do with you in your book, And then I talk about all the crazy mistakes I made, uh, and I made a lot of them. But over the course of time, the kids and science and data and and a lot of different things helped me then understand better on how to find the resources, whatever topic I was looking at. Now, if our viewers want to find out more about you and your resources and your methods and everything, how do they do that, Lori? Well, they've encouraged me to finally put a website in my own name. I've always had it in the kids' name. It was always about the kids, but I've made the transition to literally have my own website, lauribatar.com. How do you spell that? Spell that for our audience. Absolutely. It's L-O-R-I-B-I-T-A-R dot com. That's great. And what might they find at lauribatar.com? They will find books, products, services, information, and just a lot of validation, I think, that if they're looking at things much like you are in terms of different brains and not one size fits all, they'll find a lot of validation that they're on the right track. Lori, how do you see today's generation of teachers versus, pick a number, 20 years ago? How do you see them? 
Well, probably if I thought a lot about it, I would say the young teachers that I work with, because they're digital natives and not digital immigrants like us older folks, they're able to navigate change a little bit quicker and a little bit easier with many of the, I've been in thousands of classrooms and those, those young teachers seem to navigate change, but they're also able to differentiate and meet the needs of their kids a little bit better because of the, their ability to access technology. They use programs like Class Dojo where they go on and click kids' behavior and they give them that immediate feedback to let them know that they're on track and they, they, they encourage and support, um, whereas we had to do that in the old days, paper and pencil. Um, and it was, all, it was a little more difficult to navigate change as quickly as I think the new teachers are able to do. We're learning more and more that uh, female Aspies, many of whom I've met personally and interviewed and who are leaders in different fields, um, I'm finding that, well, they're teaching me, I'm not finding it, that uh, they're diagnosed much later and they give various reasons for that, why they're able to uh, go undiagnosed, you know, for so long. And it was interesting, what caught my ear when I was asking you the difference between the, uh, the males and the female students was that the the guys are more aggressive and outgoing and doing different and the and you and of course we're generalizing I apologize to anybody for you know generalizing I like to say if you've met one Aspie you've met one Aspie or if you've met one anything you've met one Aspie today we're meeting one Lori Batar who's a unique individual um, I would like to delve a little bit more while I have you here, because we have your prism here, which is a different lens to look through, to uh, uh, if you could give any more detail from your point of view about your female teachers versus male teachers, your female students versus male students. So I, I want to hear from your point of view, because you, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I, looking at just teachers and the field, um, male versus female, we don't have a lot of male teachers. We don't have a lot of male teachers. We have male administrators, but we don't have very many males who stay in the classroom. But when I've had an opportunity to take a look at what's effective and what's best practices in teaching, it usually comes down to the sense of understanding the emotional needs of kids and being willing to do whatever that that looks like. Like for example, I see a male teacher who now gives a special handshake to each kid as they come in the room, much like a basketball coach. I love to be able to do those kinds of things. Um, and I'm a female. But I think a lot of things that come together over the years have a lot to do with how we as adults perceive the kids. We say, oh, well, you're a girl. You might not be good in math and science, but we know you can write. So we've already pre-programmed and preconditioned some of those things even without knowing. The educational research they actually watched in a math class God, back in the 60s or 70s, and they videotaped at that point the teacher, and they watched who they called on and how they called on them. And again, collecting data. Data doesn't lie, especially when it's on a videotape. And the teachers would inherently or naturally call on the boy student during math, and they would naturally or inherently call on the, the female student during language arts. So it's, it's you're in your and how long have you been teaching now? Well, I started without giving away because no, I know you. I started in 1991 down in uh, Miami. So it's been uh, quite a ride between tutoring service, charter school founder, 
consultant, teacher, uh, everything I could think of to try to figure out how was my gift best used. Can you tell us more about your charter school? Yeah, I can. I would be happy to. I had left the public schools a couple of times because I was frustrated that I didn't feel like we were meeting the needs of kids. It felt bureaucratic. It felt that the kids weren't, whatever they needed was not being met. So I started a tutoring service back in 1997, and I was able to really impact kids in a very different way. And after the 9-11 tragedy, the economy shifted and changed, and some folks approached me at that time to write a charter. And I said, wow, I never really thought of that. And um, sat down with a consultant and put a charter together. But in my way, the charter was going to look like the way that it should. And so I was ahead of legislation. I did learning centers in middle school. The Middle Grades Reform Act said five years later, oh, you should do these kinds of things. I offered... um, computer-based education to my gifted kids so that they were able to access a high school curriculum, Um, put everything together in a middle school charter school uh, where we had hands-on learning, we had uh, therapeutic interventions early in the morning, we had Titan Town Hall where the kids would get up and call each other out for positive things. Uh, It was really empowering, it was very engaging, and the team and I really built a a very strong foundation. So then in 2005, we won a Governor's Top 100 Middle School Award for achievement in an at-risk population with many kids who had been diagnosed either special ed or had a 504 plan to help meet their needs. And so it was a really exciting time, and it was a great opportunity for me to figure out how smart I really wasn't. Uh, And in the meantime, I worked a little bit too hard, 17 hours a day, seven days a week, and my health just couldn't maintain a long-term commitment to that. But it was a wonderful opportunity, and several of the students from the school are in the book, and they've interacted and talked about the experience and how impactful. And as I planned my book launch and uh, activity, Uh, Many of the students were going to attend and help uh, bring everything together. So, Who should read your book? That is the million-dollar question. I have sent it to lots of folks and had lots of people in different industries read the book. Um, And the reality was each and every single time the focus group came back and said everybody should read this book. But I also have tried to listen and think about where could it be the most impactful. And I think that starting with teachers and foster care workers and after-school care workers, anyone who's working with kids who might have some issues and they weren't quite sure how to approach them, I think that it's a great vehicle and a great tool for them. Well, I found this book, SOS Save Our Students by Lori Batar, to be outstanding and inspirational, logical, and practical all wrapped into one. And we at DifferentBrains.com salute Lori Batar for being a pioneer in the thought process for the educational needs of our kids. And Lori Batar knows one size does not fit all. Lori, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here and very enlightening as well. Well, thank you very much. I've appreciated learning more about your team and all of the great work that you're doing. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.